Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Good morning, LifePoint. It is great to be with you today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 in our time together this morning. Hey, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben Wright, and I am the associate pastor of Student Life here at the church. Uh, I'm extremely thankful for this opportunity from Pastor Lane to be able to preach to you all from God's word today. Last week, we began our Advent series entitled The Prophecy of Christmas, and in Advent, we celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world, and through this series, we want to show how the birth of Jesus reveals God's plan of salvation, and here's where we're going to look at more specifically this morning. This morning, we're going to look at the classic Christmas story of the wise men, and here's what my hope is for us, is that we see that this is so much more than just a story to read once a year around Christmas time. But it's a story that shows us the value and the importance of worshiping Jesus in all of our lives. And that's exactly what our our big idea or our main point for this morning's message is out of Matthew chapter 2. Our big idea is that following Jesus is a life of worshiping him. Following Jesus is a life of worshiping him. What do you think of when you hear the word worship? So I grew up a child of the 90s, uh, and everybody who lived in the 90s got to witness how amazing Michael Jordan was at playing basketball. He won six NBA championships for the Chicago Bulls. He's generally regarded as the greatest basketball player of all time. But when he retired after the 1998 NBA season, there was this huge void to fill. Everybody's trying to figure out who's the next MJ going to be. And lo and behold, a few years later, uh, there was a really talented basketball prospect found in a high school in Ohio. And he was so talented that Sports Illustrated did a cover story on him. And they put him on the front page of their magazine with a picture of him. And it said this, the chosen one. And this junior in high school at the time was a basketball player by the name of LeBron James. And LeBron James also has a different nickname uh, that he goes by back then and today, and that is King James. He was selected number one overall by the Cleveland Cavaliers, which actually was his hometown team um, in the NBA draft. And if you know anything about sports, you know that Cleveland is generally atrocious at them. And so when they were able to draft this hometown kid, this, in a sense, savior, to save their franchise, number one overall, their fans were ecstatic. This was the guy that was going to lead them to the NBA championships. And so their fans, they went all out. They bought all of his gear. They uh, paid insane amount of money for tickets. They drove hundreds of miles to come and see him play. After LeBron's seventh year with the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, 
he decided to leave. At this point, he had no NBA championships, and he decided to leave Cleveland and go to a different team. And you would have thought that what LeBron did was the most horrific crime this world has ever seen. The city of Cleveland and his fans that once thought he was the savior, they turned on him in a heartbeat. They burned his jerseys in the streets. His family was getting death threats. And whenever, they, uh, whenever LeBron came back as an opponent the next year, uh, they had the bulk of the security so much because they were afraid of what the fans were going to do to him. See, worship is who or what we admire most. It's where we devote our time, our energy, our emotions, and our attention to. It's what we are consumed by. And all of us in here, we worship someone or something. Now, here's the deal. I love basketball. I love basketball. I love playing it. I love watching it. It just seems a little much to me to call a basketball player the chosen one or to give him the title of king. But to these fans, they worshiped him. They were consumed by him. They had traveled to uh, watch their king play hundreds of miles. They had presented him gifts through their ticket purchases and they wore his jerseys wherever they went and they felt betrayed when he left. Now, I know ultimately he went back to Cleveland and won a championship. But for the purposes of this sermon illustration, that doesn't really help me out. Because what I'm trying to show you this morning is that Jesus and Jesus alone is our greater king that is worthy of all of our worship. That Jesus and Jesus alone is worth us traveling however miles, many miles we need to, to see him, to give him all of our life. And once again, that's our big idea for this morning, is that following Jesus is a life of worshiping him. And so this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at three aspects to remember about God and worship from Matthew chapter two. So open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter two, and let's go ahead and let's look at the first aspect to remember. Here's the first aspect to remember about God and worship. The first aspect is that God chooses the unexpected to worship him. God chooses the unexpected, to worship him. Look with me at verses one through two in Matthew chapter two. In verse one we read, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, let me give you a little bit more context on the Gospel of Matthew and what's, what's happening right now. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew is written by a guy named Matthew. And Matthew was a former tax collector that was saved by Jesus and called to be an apostle. And he writes for us this biography of Jesus. And actually, Matthew's really writing this for a predominantly Jewish audience. That's why if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see so many references back to the Old Testament and scripture references back to the Old Testament because what Matthew's trying to show his primarily Jewish audience is that Jesus has fulfilled these prophecies and that Jesus is the promised Messiah that Israel is looking for. And the context of this story comes after Jesus is born. Um, and we don't know exactly how old Jesus was, but we know he was probably within his first two years of life. And look with me again at the text because it says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, Bethlehem 
was this obscure little town. It didn't really have much use for the Roman Empire. It was five miles south of Jerusalem. So think of the distance between where we are right now and Lambert's. And then Matthew says that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about Herod in a bit. So let's move on and keep reading. And it says, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, one of the things we notice as we look to see what actually what the Bible says is that it doesn't say there are three wise men. It just says wise men from the east. In fact, we have no idea how many wise men there actually were. Um, we get that number three from the amount of gifts that they offer, but there could have been five, there could have been 10, there could have been 15, there could have been 20 wise men that came and visited. But what we do know about these wise men is that these were, or these magi, but these were astrologers. They studied the stars. They studied the formation of the stars. They were well thought of in society. They were well thought of by the religious leaders and the politicians. They were high-ranking officials. And it says that these wise men came from the east. So this could mean Babylon or Persia, which likely means that they traveled hundreds of miles to come and see Jesus. And I think what we need to realize about these wise men, because these wise men were not Jews, these were Gentiles. These were pagan worshipers. I think what we need to realize about the wise men and what Matthew is trying to show us is that these were Gentiles looking for Jesus. These weren't God's chosen people. These weren't the Israelites, but pagan worshipers. And look with me at the text at what they ask. They ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, uh, the, the reference to the star is from Numbers 24, 17, that a star would come out of Jacob. And it's this promise of the Messiah to come, and I'll be honest with you, I have no idea how they knew which star to go to. As I was studying uh, commentaries for this text over the past few weeks, they have no idea. And I think too often we get caught up in the minute details of trying to figure out, well, how do they know which star to go to? And we lose sight of the fact that a bunch of pagans were looking for, to travel to see and worship Jesus from hundreds and hundreds of miles away because this signified something huge, that the Messiah wasn't just for the Jews, but he was for all peoples and all nations. Too often I think that we believe that there's a certain type of person that God wants to use, that either it's the uber-gifted or those who don't really seem to struggle with sin, maybe like we do, or those that seem to be better at church than us, or just generally more successful in life. And so what we do is we, we put on this character that tries to look like we have it all together, but it's not really us. And this is why we try to hide those less than impressive parts of our lives. This could also be known as social media. And for some of us, this is why we live in complete isolation from others about our struggles because we're afraid of what others might think about the real us. But guys, it's not like that with Jesus. See, Jesus, he knows the real us and he still loves us. Let me ask you a question. Who is the person that you least expect to worship Jesus? The person you least expect to worship Jesus. Maybe it's a friend, a sibling, a neighbor, a coworker, a parent. Maybe it's a spouse, a child. Maybe it's a politician. 
In John chapter four, there's this story of Jesus traveling back to his hometown of Galilee. And before Jesus goes home to Galilee, he decides to make a pit stop in a town that no Jew would ever be caught dead in. And this was the town of Samaria. See, the Jews and the Samaritans, they absolutely hated one another. The Jewish people looked down upon the Samaritans. So why in the world would Jesus, of all people, go through Samaria? Because he knew that there was a broken, hurting, hopeless woman there that was caught in a cycle of sin. And so as Jesus was traveling through Samaria, it's around noon one day, and he comes to a well, and he's thirsty, and he finds this woman there, and she's drawing water out of this well, and he asks her for a drink. Now, Jesus begins to graciously talk to her and confront her about her sin. Now, let me, let me share this with you. People didn't go around noon to draw water out of a well. They would either go in the early mornings or the evenings because it was the hottest part of the day. And so what we learn about this woman is that she's hiding something, that she's filled with so much guilt and shame over her sin that she wants to avoid people at all costs. And what we actually learn to find out about this woman um, is that she's been married five different times and she's now in a relationship, living with a man in a sexually immoral relationship that's not her husband. And there's Jesus the creator of the universe, right there with her. And she can't even believe that he's talking to her. Listen to what she says in John, verse, uh, John chapter four, verse nine. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But unlike the world, Jesus doesn't consider this woman a lost cause. He knows that she has a soul. And the God of the universe meets her right where she's at in life and he offers her grace and forgiveness. He offers the hopeless hope. And in verse 28, we read, and pay attention to this, the woman left her water jar and went away into a town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Here's a woman that was so ashamed of being around people that she would go and draw water during the hottest part of the day. And now she's leaving her well and she's running back to the town to tell this town about Jesus. That's how much she understood and felt the love of Christ, that she was willing to go and share this good news with her hometown. And in John chapter four, verse 39, we read, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Think about if Jesus would have never have gone through Samaria for the unexpected during that time of the day. There would be a whole entire town separated from God today because they would have never have heard the good news of Jesus. Life point, the entire Bible is a story about God rescuing and redeeming the unexpected so that they can worship him. If you go back just one chapter to Matthew chapter one, and you look at Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' ancestors, they're an absolute mess. His lineage is full of murderers and adulterers and prostitutes and pagan worshipers and widowers and those who experienced hardships and, and having children. And I think one of the biggest temptations we fight against as followers of Jesus is the lie from Satan, from the world, and from our own flesh telling us that we have to have it all together for Jesus, and it's just not true. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. 
Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are church. You and I, we are the unexpected. We are the foolish. We are the weak that God has chosen to use to worship him, to bring glory to his name. I asked you earlier who that person was that you least expected to worship Jesus. This is the person that needs to hear about Jesus from you. God has you in their life for a reason. Imagine being a part of a church that took seriously the mandate to make disciples of the unexpected. Wouldn't it be amazing to see how the gospel could transform our community just like it's transformed our own lives? That's the first aspect to remember about God in worship, that God chooses the unexpected to worship him. Let's look at the second aspect to remember about God in worship. The second aspect to remember is that God knows our true intentions for worship. God knows our true intentions for worship. Look with me at verses three through nine in Matthew chapter two. In verse three we read, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So let's now talk about Herod. Herod was given uh, authority by the Romans of Judea about 40 years before Jesus ever walked on this earth. And Herod himself actually considered himself the king of the Jews. And Herod was just your prototypical bloodthirsty tyrant. Uh, this guy was so vicious and he was so paranoid of people taking over his throne that he had his own wives and children and closest friends to him killed because he saw them as a threat. And so, of course, in verse 3, when it says Herod heard this about this proclaimed king of the Jews coming, of course he was troubled. He killed his own family members. He's going to try to find whoever this is and have him murdered as well. But not only Herod, it says in verse 3, it says all Jerusalem with him. Isn't that sad to think about that the promised Messiah for the Jews, and it says all Jerusalem with him. And this includes the chief priests and the scribes. And look with me at verse four. It says, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so what Herod does is he finds the religious leaders and he says, tell me where the prophecies say that Jesus is going to be born. And we're gonna, see, we're gonna learn more about this next week uh, when Pastor Jonathan preaches. But Herod has one intention and that is to find Jesus and it's to kill Jesus. And then in verse five it says, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this is a paraphrase of Micah 5.2. It's a promise from the Old Testament that the future Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And then look with me at verses 7 through 9. It says, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Do any of us in here actually believe Herod? Here's this guy that has killed family members because he was so threatened by their um, power and potential power 
and now he's saying that he feels like he wants to go and worship this proclaimed king of the Jews? No, hopefully none of us in here actually believe what Herod is saying. See, what Herod is doing is he's saying one thing with his mouth, but his heart desires a completely different thing. Let me give you an illustration. I love studying history. I studied it in college. I taught it for a season of my life. And I actually like learning about United States presidents and presidential candidates and presidential races. But the more and more I learn about presidents and presidential candidates, the more I realize that a lot of these candidates, if not all of these candidates, make a lot of promises that they don't keep. They say a lot of things that they don't really intend for in their heart. Let me give you a few examples of some promises that presidential candidates or presidents have made. One of them said that if you just elected them as president, that diabetes and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and other debilitating diseases would be cured. One presidential candidate promised to end boredom, which would be pretty cool. One presidential candidate promised, and I kid you not, this is real, he promised a moon colony by the end of his second term, which would also be really cool. One promised to eliminate poverty with credit cards. One promised to not raise taxes, but immediately signed a bill that raised taxes. And maybe the most famous promise broken was by Woodrow Wilson in 1916. He campaigned with the slogan, he kept us out of war, only then to enter World War I a year later. Now here's the thing. I, don't, I can't look into these uh, presidential candidates' hearts and see if that's actually really what they meant. But my guess is that a lot of the promises they were making were just to benefit themselves. They actually had no really intention in trying to fulfill them. And I think that's exactly what we see here with King Herod, because just a few verses earlier, he's troubled by Jesus, but now he wants to worship him. Herod knows exactly what he's doing. He's claiming to worship Jesus, but living life like he wants to live it. He has no desire to actually submit to Jesus. See, I think we tend to look at Herod, and I include myself in this, and be like, man, what an awful guy. I would never be like that. He's just a liar. He's hungry for power and control. He just hurts those around him. All he's doing is trying to benefit himself. But before we're quick to judge, could it be that we're actually more like Herod than we realize? Do we often use Jesus as a means to worship ourself. Jesus once told some religious leaders, and remind you this, these are religious leaders who knew the Old Testament scriptures or the first five books of the Old Testament in and out. These were your teachers of the law, your holy ones. Listen to what Jesus told these religious leaders. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. He also called them whitewashed tombs. They were dead on the out, or dead on, or pretty on the outside, but dead on the inside. Guys, how often is this us? We live in such a highly churched area. In fact, one article I was reading said that the Springfield area is the sixth most Bible-based city in the country, which sounds great. But what do we do? What do we do with the other article that says that the Springfield area has some of the most crime per capita? in the entire country. See, we have to be very careful that we don't equate religious activity with Christ-exalting worship. 
Just because we do a lot doesn't mean that our hearts are spiritually healthy. And I think this is exactly what Jesus was saying about those religious leaders. And the reality is that you and I are much more like Herod than Jesus. We, more often than we'd like, we claim to worship Jesus, but our hearts are worshiping someone or something else. And God knows our hearts. He knows our intentions behind everything we do. He is not fooled. So let me ask you this. Where's your heart right now? Would you say that you're spiritually healthy? Or do you just feel like you're going through the motions of Jesus and church just to really benefit and maybe even worship you? I think this is why we need to be reminded of the gospel every single day because without it, our hearts tend towards religious activity to show how awesome we are. And when we're great, we become self-righteous. And when we fail, we run from Jesus and his people. But as we set our hearts and our minds and our attentions on the fact that Jesus came and he lived the perfect life and he died in our place. And so if we're in Christ, our righteousness isn't of our own. It's because of Jesus. We get his righteousness. And if we come and we worship Jesus, understanding that, we'll begin to feel freedom and joy instead of anxiety and feeling troubled. And this leads us to the third aspect to remember about God and worship. The third aspect is that God blesses us with joy when our hearts worship Jesus. God blesses us with joy when our hearts worship Jesus. Look with me at verses 10 through 12 in Matthew chapter 2. Verse 10 says, when they saw the star, pay attention to this, it says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they'd offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country by another way. Look at how the wise men respond when they finally see Jesus. They fall down at his feet and they worship him. Look, I, I, have, I have three boys, and when they were born into this world, as much as I love them, I didn't fall down at their feet and worship them. There's something special about this child that was born, and the wise men see it. They worship him. They give him all adoration and praise because they are in the presence of one that is holy. And as they're gazing upon the beauty of this child, their hearts are filled with joy because it says they Rejoice. Now, I don't know how the wise men knew about that this was the spot and he was the Messiah. Maybe they had heard uh, prophecies like Isaiah 7, 14 that says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Or maybe they heard Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, I don't know how they knew, but they knew. And when they saw Jesus, they were overcome with joy. I've been married to my beautiful wife, Carmen, for almost eight years now, and I can still remember my wedding day like it was yesterday. And it's funny because the day of your wedding is very different than the days leading up to it. I often joke with my friends that are engaged, and I tell them this is the worst part of it all this engagement period where uh, everybody thinks you're married, 
but you're not. And you're trying to figure out, okay, which family members, which friends do I invite to the wedding? Which make the cut, which don't? What food are we going to serve? The wedding cake, it's got to look awesome. Where are we going to get the wedding cake at? The dress, the tuxes, um, how are we going to, the photographer, how are we going to keep all of this under a million dollars? And the night before Carmen and I's wedding, there was this massive ice storm. Everything was completely covered in ice, and so we were pretty stressed out. But then the wedding day arrived. And that day was filled with so much excitement and anticipation because I was finally going to enter into covenant with my bride. And all of those stresses and anxieties were taken away the moment I saw Carmen walking down the aisle. My heart was filled with utter joy as I gazed upon her beauty. In life point, as wonderful as my wedding day was when I got to gaze upon the beauty of my bride, it will be nothing compared to the day when Jesus returns to gather his bride and we get to gaze upon the beauty of Christ forever. See, every single one of us in here is looking for something to awe us. We want to worship something. We know deep down that something is missing in our lives. This is why when we go to the mountains and we see their height and their depth, we're amazed because it's beautiful. This is why when we go to the ocean and we see the waves crashing against the shore and the endless sight of blue water, we're amazed because it's beautiful. This is why when in the middle of the summer, we're hanging around outside until evening and there's a little bit of a chill that comes through and we see the sun begin to set and the sky turns orange, we're amazed because it's beautiful. You and I, we were created to gaze upon beauty. This is why when the wise men saw Jesus, they rejoiced because they saw the most beautiful one. And when our hearts are set on the beauty of Christ, we are overcome with joy. And joy is different than happiness. Joy is something that cannot be taken from us. Happiness can. Happiness is completely dependent upon life circumstances, but joy is completely dependent upon who or what we're worshiping. See, it's joy found in the beauty of Christ that gets us through the pain of sickness. It's joy found in the beauty of Christ that gets us through the anxieties of living in a world of so many uncertainties. It's joy found in the beauty of Christ that gets us through a tough marriage. It's joy found in the beauty of Christ that gets us through the loss of a loved one. It's joy found in the beauty of Christ that gets us through that dark night or month or year or years of the soul. And it's joy found in the beauty of Christ that helps us overcome that sin that just won't seem to go away. Life points, Satan is out there trying to have us find our joy in all the wrong places. He wants us to worship everything but Jesus because that's how he keeps us enslaved to him. But Jesus, and only Jesus, offers us the fullness of joy as our hearts are set on worshiping him. Let us not be fooled by the enemy's tactics. Let us gaze our eyes upon the beauty of Christ. God blesses us with joy when our hearts worship Jesus. This morning, we've looked at three aspects to remember about God in worship. First, we saw that God chooses the unexpected to worship him. Second, we saw that God knows our true intentions for worship. And the third aspect we just saw was that God blesses us with joy when our hearts worship Jesus. When the wise men finally got to behold Jesus, they fell down and they worshiped him. And as they were worshiping him, they pulled out these three gifts to give to Jesus and his family. And they gave him gold, frankincense, 
and myrrh. And these were extravagant gifts to give a child in an obscure town like Bethlehem. But it was custom, custom to give gifts when you were in the presence of one who is superior to you. Now, we can't be 100% sure why the wise men gave these three gifts, but Scripture does give us some ideas that are associated with them. See, gold was usually associated with royalty. It was often given to kings. And frankincense was a, a fragrance that was usually used to worship God in the Old Testament. So this could potentially symbolize Jesus' deity. In the final gift, myrrh, it had been used as a perfume or an incense and even sometimes a medicine. But what we do know is that this wouldn't be the last time Jesus was offered myrrh. See, when this child grew up, he would be convicted as a criminal and sentenced to public crucifixion. And as Jesus was being lifted onto the cross, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh to help numb the pain. And as one commentator puts it, not only was Jesus presented with myrrh as a king in a cradle, but he would be offered myrrh as a king on a cross. Think about this. These are two very different circumstances. The first time Jesus is offered myrrh, he is in the comfort of his earthly father and mother. There's these pagan astrologists that have come to worship him as the savior of the world. They are completely honoring him. But then 30 plus years later, Jesus has lived among the people. He's healed, he's taught them, he's rebuked demons, he's forgiven them of sins, he's perfectly loved everyone around him. He lived the perfect life. And despite Jesus' perfect life, he's tried as a criminal and nailed to the cross. And it's as he's suffering on that cross that he's offered myrrh a second time. See, the first time he was offered myrrh, it was in honor. But the second time, it was in humiliation. See, you and I, when we were born into this world, we were not born as worshipers of God. The Bible is clear that you and I were born as enemies of God, that we actually wanted nothing to do with God, that we worshiped everything and everyone besides him and primarily ourselves. And God knew that and that God loved us so much that he had a plan from Genesis to Revelation. And this plan was to come into this world as the God-man Jesus Christ to live the perfect life in our place that you and I could not live. You see that, that thought you've had that impure look or those impure words you said or those impure actions you've committed in your life, Jesus never did that. He was perfect in our place and Jesus lived the perfect life in our place and he died the death on the cross that we deserved. He took our wrath for our sin. He took our judgment and he died. And when Jesus died, he encountered myrrh for a third time as his body was embalmed in it and he was placed in a tomb. But here's how we know that Jesus is worthy of our worship because that tomb could not hold him. Jesus resurrected three days later to prove that he was the promised Messiah, that when the Magi went and worshiped Jesus, that he actually was worthy of his worship because he was the promised Messiah that Israel, and not just Israel, but you and I have been longing for our entire Lives. See, Jesus says when we repent of our sin and we put our trust in Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, we are spiritually cleansed. Our sin is taken away, all of it. 
When the Father looks down, he never sees an ounce of sin if you are in Christ. And because of this, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us and we can now worship God freely because of the Holy Spirit. But if you are not in Christ, this is not you. You are still enslaved to your sin, worshiping yourself. But for us who know Jesus, as the wise men were celebrating the coming of Jesus, what we know and celebrate as Advent, we now long for the second Advent, where Jesus will one day return to gather his people and where we will one day get to fall down on our faces and rejoice at the coming of our risen Savior. Life point, this is the good news of Jesus. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're realizing for the first time in your life that you're not worshiping Jesus. Maybe you have gone to church a lot in your life. Maybe you've had a lot of religious experiences, but you've never actually had a heart submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, and you're seeing that it's so much more beautiful than what you are currently worshiping. If this is you, if you would um, like to put your faith in Jesus today, after the final song, I'll be standing up here, and I would love to pray with you and talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Or maybe you're in here today, and you're just, you're like me, and you find yourself day after day worshiping other things besides Jesus. And we are so thankful for the grace that God has shown us and covers us by the blood of Christ. Maybe you're in here and you're a believer and you're just struggling and you just need somebody to pray with. If this is you, um, come find me and I would love to pray with you as well. Life point, following Jesus is a life of worshiping him. Let's pray.